Hello, and welcome to the Personal Injury Law Podcast. My name is Jonathan Rosenfeld, an attorney at Rosenfeld Injury Lawyers, LLC. This podcast is here to break down the barriers when it comes to the world of personal injury law. Each podcast will go into detail about a specific legal issue or type of personal injury case, from everyday occurrences to the esoteric. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. For more information, visit my website at rosenfeldinjurylawyers.com. Hi, I am Jonathan Rosenfeld, and today on the Personal Injury Podcast, I am talking with attorney Sarah Salger at the Gory Law Firm, uh, and we are going to be talking about mesothelioma lawsuits and asbestos exposure. Uh, Sarah, first off, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sarah, we see a lot of television advertising today for mesothelioma cases, mesothelioma lawsuits. Uh, you know, sometimes people say that, hey, get a, a mesothelioma claim settlement, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, these are really you know, like any other personal injury uh, tort type case, they are about, uh, you have to basically prove your case. You got to prove negligence. You got to prove damages. Um, in terms of, you know, these cases, these mesothelioma cases right now, um, are these cases typically, you know, filed individually? Are they filed as a class action? Um, just for those of us who are watching, can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of these cases, how they're evaluated, how they're handled? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they are personal injury cases or wrongful death cases. Uh, they're an individual claim. It is not a class action. Um, these claims do have different components to it. So you would have the personal injury case or the wrongful death case that would actually be filed on behalf of that individual plaintiff or family in the courts. Um, there are also uh, bankruptcy trusts set up that there may be compensation available to somebody with mesothelioma or lung cancer. Um, and these are companies that either have gone bankrupt or have the portion of their company that made asbestos products have gone bankrupt over the years and trusts were set up. Um, and we can make claims to these trusts on behalf of, of the individual plaintiffs or families. Um, now there still requires proof and, and proof of exposure to that product through the trust, normally through affidavits. Um, and on the viable side or the court case, um, we would do depositions uh, to determine what particular products or premises uh, that individual plaintiff was um, exposed to for their case and, and who is responsible for their mesothelioma or for their lung cancer. Gotcha. So these trusts, can you give us a little bit of background about these trusts? Um, you know, are these trusts that are just, you know, open uh, money is set aside from these companies or how exactly are these trusts set up and what is the sort of the underlying reasoning behind them? Yeah, so it's a way um, for an... The, for instance, John's Manville, that was one of the first bankruptcy trusts set up. Obviously, John's Manville is still a company um, that you can go to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy their, their products. Um, but they made a lot of asbestos products. So whenever they, they bankrupted that portion um, of their company, they set up a trust. And what the point of that trust is, is to pay anybody who is injured 
from being um, exposed to their products. And so it's set up with a certain amount of money. Um, you know, there are futures reps who review it. And, and the, the goal is to try to put enough money in the trust, invest it, and um, to get it to last as long as possible to pay out as many injured people as possible. So what you'll see with those trusts is as the years go on, they may reduce their payment percentage. So you would not get the full payment that you would get had they still been in the litigation system or in the tort system. And the reason for doing that is to try to make sure that there are funds available um, and resources for, you know, as many plaintiffs as possible, um, you know, into the future. So with respect to these uh, mesothelioma trusts that are set up, does someone bring a, a claim against the trust or do they actually go ahead and, uh, and file a lawsuit in court? Uh, in, you know, is there, is there a distinction between those? Yeah, so normally you're going to file a lawsuit in the court as to only the viable defendants. So any of the trusts, um, each of the trusts when it's set up has what's called a TDP. You can get them on the trust um, website and it essentially tells you exactly what you have to prove or what you have to provide um, to obtain a settlement from that trust. So you don't technically need to have a lawsuit filed um, to submit to those trusts, but normally they go hand in hand because uh, most plaintiffs are not going to have been exposed to just bankrupt companies. Most of the time they will have some um, viable, uh, still active companies that they are pursuing as well. In terms of who is eligible to file one of these cases or claims, um, are you seeing people you know, currently active, uh, you know, uh, plaintiffs uh, primarily, or are you seeing families where they may have a loved one who may have suffered uh, from mesothelioma and died? Um, what exactly in terms of uh, the plaintiffs in these cases, in terms of a breakdown, uh, are you seeing? Are you seeing more, you know, individuals uh, who may have active mesothelioma cases or families or both? Or is it sort of a, just a random mixture? Yeah, so I would say we see both. Um, for the most part, a lot of times, uh, if somebody is diagnosed with mesothelioma, they will start a case. Um, and due to uh, just the kind of how quick uh, acting the, the disease is, a lot of times it's their family that substitutes in uh, as a wrongful death case that finishes the case. Um, we also handle lung cancer cases, which are a little bit different than, than mesothelioma. It's a, a different tumor. Um, a lot of times those lung cancer clients will be the ones um, proceeding on their case throughout, but, but we handle both, you know, both the person diagnosed and um, if they unfortunately pass, uh, their loved ones many times will continue the lawsuit on their behalf. Gotcha. In terms of the uh, the damages on these cases. Um, you know, we've, we've seen some substantial verdicts on some of these cases, but, um, you know, if someone's watching this and they're looking at, Hey, you know what, maybe I've got a case, maybe I don't, uh, I just have a lot of questions. Uh, what types of compensation are available for someone, uh, with a mesothelioma claim? So it's going to depend. It's going to be a little bit on a on a case by case basis because um, mesothelioma is what's known as a signature disease, um, meaning that the only known proven medical cause of mesothelioma is asbestos exposure. Um, so that gets us. If somebody is diagnosed with mesothelioma, I know that they were exposed to asbestos, but I still have to figure out what particular products they were exposed to. 
Um, so that's where the value is going to be different in proving how many products I can prove or how many premises I can prove that particular plaintiff um, was exposed to. Obviously in mesothelioma cases, um, if, if someone passes away, you know, that putting a value on a human life is hard to do. Um, also, the um, treatment in mesothelioma can be very expensive. There are um, some surgeries that can be done, but, but they are high risk, uh, expensive surgeries. So a lot of times when we're looking at valuing these cases, we are looking on a case by case basis of what treatment have you had? Um, you know, what surgeries have you had? What are your medical costs? Um, and, and kind of what are the damages? What, what have you as an individual plaintiff gone through um, to try to value what that case is worth and, and, and who is responsible um, for the diagnosis? basically ba back to the, uh, the basics, you know, you know, what are the way, what's the wage loss? How is it impacted the individual? You know, what type of pain and suffering, um, you know, did they endure during their, uh, their illness? So, um, that's good information. Um, one of the things that, that comes up in, in, in mesothelioma cases and any other type of personal injury cases, Hey, how, how long do I have to bring a case? Um, and, and I know one of the difficult things in, in mesothelioma claims is that, you know, there is a incubation period where someone may have, you know, uh, some illness or whatever, but they may not have an actual diagnosis of mesothelioma. Um, how are you looking at these cases from a, from a statute of limitations perspective and a time to file uh, a claim? Yeah, so mesothelioma is um, what's called a latent disease, meaning that you may have the exposure and not actually receive a diagnosis of mesothelioma until 15, 20, 50 years after you've had that exposure. So when looking at the statute of limitations, we are looking at the date of injury as the date of the diagnosis, not the date of when the exposure occurred. Um, so the statute, you know, we handle cases throughout the entire United States. So each individual plaintiff, we're going to look at the statute of limitations, um, in the state where they reside, you know, for the most part, most states are going to be two to three years. Some states you'll have five years. There's some with six years. Um, so that's going to be an individual determination of where that plaintiff lives, where they were diagnosed, where they were exposed. Um, but as far as statute of limitations, we're looking at that date of diagnosis as the date of injury. If a family member is watching this and is, is thinking to themselves, you know what, my, you know, my mother, my father, uh, perish from, uh, mesothelioma. Um, you know, I think, I think they, you know, may have worked around it, uh, in terms of bringing forth a claim, what exactly is involved? You know, how much work is required from the family? Uh, to get a case going. Um, obviously, there's, you know, depends on the, the uh, how the case plays out. There's a lot of variables involved, you know, does the case go to trial? Does it get, um, does it get settled? But what exactly can someone anticipate in terms of uh, the progression of a, of a MISO case? Yeah. So, and if it's a family member bringing it because their loved one's already passed, then we're looking at that as a wrongful death case. So for the statute of limitations, we're looking at that date of death. Um, kind of the way that all of these cases progress, whether it's a, a living victim of mesothelioma or their family members bringing it on their behalf, um, is that they're involved in the initial, you know, investigation. As far as the medical records, we can get all of those. Um, we can work with experts uh, to link their disease. 
Uh, but what we need um, from either the client or the, the client's family is, you know, where were they exposed? And a lot of times it's a matter of just figuring out, you know, what was their work history? What did their mom do? What did their dad do? And kind of going through more of the family tree, the work history, and just what products or premises um, they would have been exposed to. And then at that point, we kind of take the reins um, in working up the case against those defendants that, that we've identified as potential exposures um, for that particular client. Um, that's really, really good information. Now, I want to transition a little bit and talk with you about settlements of mesothelioma claims. Um, you know, we spoke earlier, you know, some of these cases have really grabbed headlines, you know, hey, this person got you know, a lot of money for their particular case. Um, but let's assume that you have a family member who has uh, mesothelioma, they may have died from mesothelioma. Um, in terms of bringing a claim, what type of damages can you anticipate? No, obviously, you know, every case is different, you know, there may be there's a lot of different factors, but what type of damages are you looking at in these cases? Yeah, so each case we're looking at, uh, you know, at, as we talked about earlier, we're looking at what their actual medical costs are. Do they have wage loss? If there's somebody that's diagnosed younger, you know, we'll get economist report to show um, what that wage loss may be. Um, just general pain and suffering of what that person has lost and, um, you know, what could they do before that they can't do now. Um, so, so that's kind of each plaintiff we're looking at how this diagnosis has affected that individual plaintiff. And, and that's kind of what goes into um, the settlement values. Obviously, if we have a plaintiff, not that it makes somebody's life worth less, but if we have a plaintiff that has minor children or adult disabled children that they've cared for and the diagnosis results in them not being able to work, whenever we're um, settling that case, that's something that's gonna be taken into consideration um, is that you know, the inability to work is going to then affect those minor children or that disabled adult child. Now, you mentioned uh, in a, in a earlier conversation that we had about these trusts that are set up. Um, but who exactly are these cases being brought against? You know, a lot of times, you know, if someone worked in a, in, in a, in a factory or some work type of work environment, they may not have any idea who was responsible for the particular um, exposure, um, but who are these cases being brought against? You know, are they brought against uh, multiple entities or who exactly are you targeting with these cases? Yeah, so the, the case is actually brought against, any, so the way that mesothelioma works is that um, you it's not one exposure that results in the disease. It's um, continual exposure to however many products or premises that you may have been exposed to over time contribute to the disease. So there's, it's called a contributing factor. So what we're looking at is any products that the plaintiff may have worked with or around that contained asbestos, any premises that they worked at that would have, um, you know, had asbestos products or had as, uh, asbestos in the premise. Um, kind of some of the trades that we that we look at are some of the products that contain asbestos. I mean, it's it's a lot that that people wouldn't think of. Obviously, if somebody's working at a refinery, there's industrial equipment um, and industrial products that they may be around. But there's also asbestos in home remodeling products, um, you know, joint compound, floor tiles, ceiling tiles, um, friction products, so clutches, brakes, auto work. 
Um, and, and what we're seeing a lot of now, and, and that it's been in the news because of Johnson & Johnson, are um, talc products, which talc is not actually asbestos, but, but it's shown that um, the way that talc is mined, uh, it, it, you can have asbestos contaminant because asbestos is an actual naturally occurring fiber. Um, so now what we're starting to see is some younger plaintiffs and the exposures that they have are exposures to these talc products or, or baby powder products. Um, so it really is kind of just a, a building a life history of all of the potential exposures that individual plaintiff may have worked with or around. Um, another aspect is a secondary case. Uh, so you may have someone who is a housewife her entire life, but her husband worked for the railroad or her husband worked at a refinery brought his clothes home that had asbestos fibers on them. She did the laundry or he rode in the family car in his work clothes. Um, so it really is very much an investigation into each individual case as to, okay, you have this disease. Now what products or premises or defendants are responsible for it? Um, now, obviously these sort of cases, they all sort of take on a life of their own after some point, you know, um, depending on their, their exposure level, depending on, where they, he or she may have worked. Um, but in terms of filing a claim, uh, how long are these cases typically taking? I mean, uh, are they, I mean, are they getting resolved quickly? Uh, or are these cases sort of just sort of going down the, the litigation uh, hole and sort of ending and festering uh, for years on end? What exactly is sort of the time frame? You know, obviously there's, there's a, there's a lot of factors involved, but what exactly is the time frame for resolving these cases? So for a viable case, you're looking at, and by viable, I mean the case in the court, you're looking at, you know, 12 to 24 months. Um, most dockets, you can get expedited settings if you have a living plaintiff, um, just because of kind of the, the terminal and fast acting um, of mesothelioma, you can get tri an expedited trial setting. Um, the reason why these cases can continue longer is we talked about those bankruptcy trusts. Um, and so new trusts open um, as defendants file bankruptcy, new trusts can open. Um, and if a plaintiff qualifies for that trust, we would submit them. So to give you an example, for the most part, cases will resolve between 12 and 24 months. But for example, there was one bankruptcy trust um, that did not end up getting set up until 20 years after the entity went bankrupt. So those clients that um, qualified for that 20 years later, their families were receive, receiving a settlement. That's definitely the exception, not the rule. Um, but it is something that's ongoing that as new trusts open, we go back and re-review and figure out, does this particular plaintiff have an exposure to this product or would they qualify for this trust? Um, but for the most part, you're going to see it resolve um, in a couple of years. And these trusts are not you know, your, uh, your small ma and pa, uh, type trust. These are substantial, you know, amounts of money that are being put into these trusts to pay, uh, injured parties. So it's not like, you know, oh, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna be a pittance. These are very substantial amounts of money that are, are invested into these trusts behind, you know, with very large corporations. So there, there should be some money at the end of the day for someone who does have a legitimate case. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And like I said earlier, the way that the trusts operate, um, they have people overseeing kind of the money in the trust. And as 
you know, the markets change and the money in the trust goes up or down, you'll see those trusts uh, change their payment percentage. They may pay at a higher payment percentage or a lower payment percentage. Um, but the goal of the trust was to set them up to um, pay as many injured people as possible um, and to spread it out as long as possible so that the money is there for future claimants as well. Um, so for the most part, you know, those, those trusts are ongoing and um, the ability for future plaintiffs to submit to them um, should still be there as long as the trust is ran uh, correctly. Sarah, um, I wanna thank you for really sharing all this information with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure and I really appreciate your, your insight. Thank you. Thanks again for having me today. Thank you for listening to the Personal Injury Law Podcast. I'm Jonathan Rosenfeld. If you or anyone you know would like more information on any of the topics on the podcast, please visit my website at rosenfeldinjurylawyers.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Please feel free to rate the show and leave a review. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.